Okay, let's uh, turn our Bibles to Ephesians 1, chapter, chapter 1, and let's read from verse 19. And this is, today we're going to consider the third prayer request of Paul. Um, he prayed for three things we have seen um, in the, from verse 18. But yeah, let's read, actually let's read from verse 17, just to get the whole flow of Paul's prayer. We're focusing on verse 19 and 20 together. Even as we read, remember this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's just humble ourselves and let's pray. Father, I want to pray that even um, that you would fulfill this very prayer that we've just read, that you would give us the, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, that we might know you, that we might know our hope and what are the glorious riches of your inheritance in us but specifically tonight lord that you would open our eyes as full prayed as well earlier to really know the present power we possess the same power that rose christ from the dead working in us that we would know it by experience but that we would rely on it lord and be encouraged by it oh father i pray that you would truly work in us and revive us and renew our spiritual joy and zeal for your name, even as we study this passage. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Beloved, I want you to try and imagine how much power God possesses. What is the first display in the Bible of God's power? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Think about that. Look around you. Everything you see, everything you feel, everything that you enjoy in this creation has been made by God. And how did he make this? The sun, the moon, the stars. Through speaking. Can you imagine a power like that, that you can speak and Everything around us is created by his might, by his word. What power is that? I love um, as we look at Genesis and remember Abraham, God promised that, that Sarah will have, a, have a, a baby. But humanly speaking, it was already impossible for her to get a baby. And so we read in Genesis 18 verse 14, after Sarah really laughed, laughed at this idea that she could be pregnant. I think it was age 90 around there. And is it 19? <laughs> okay, sorry. But um, Genesis 18 verse 14 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So is anything too hard? I love that question, right? So because God is almighty, everything is easily, is, is equally difficult for him. 
and equally easy for him. There's no levels of difficulty for God. Everything is equally easy for God to do because he has all power. Another way to ask this question is, does anything frustrate God? Does anything frustrate him? Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I don't know about you, but if you do all that you please, you are never frustrated, right? It's because we can't do what we please that we are constantly frustrated. But God is not like us. He's not limited in power, not limited in wisdom, not limited in might to do anything that pleases him. Or perhaps Psalm 33 verse 10 to 11 is a bit more clear. It says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. It is not us who frustrates God's plans. It is God's right. That's a God right to be able to frustrate our plans, the nations, the world. He has the power to do that. But you might say, what about those rulers? What about those mighty rulers? Who has authority to raise them up or to put them down at will? Again, the answer is God does. Listen to Isaiah 40 verse 21. It says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. So God's power is always displayed all around us by creation, by sustaining the creation, by rising and bringing down rulers. And probably the pinnacle of a ruler that God has humbled is Nebuchadnezzar at the, the pinnacle of his glory when he said, Did not all this, is all not all this kingdom by my might? And God made him like an ox. It wasn't hard. It wasn't hard for God. But you know what's the pinnacle of God's power? Do you know where the greatest display of God's power is found in the Bible? In the resurrection of his son. I love this verse. Romans 6 verse 4 shows us that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. By the glory of the Father. It was God's glory to take his son from the grave. And raise him up. His glory was magnified. His power was displayed. Remember that that man in the grave was not just an ordinary man that just died an ordinary death. That man has just consumed the eternities of millions of souls of God's wrath in a few hours. And God took him and he raised him from the dead. I love this quote from F.F. F. Bruce. He says, if the death of Christ is the supreme demonstration of his love, of the love of God, which it is, okay, then the resurrection of Christ is the supreme example of his power. And our text this afternoon shows us that that same power which God used to raise his son from the grave works in us, works in the believer. That's mind-blowing. Now, this makes sense that that power that had to be a sovereign almighty power because it is one thing to make something out of nothing. It is one thing to create everything out of nothing, but it is quite another to take an evil, sinful, proud, selfish, corrupt, and wicked heart and change it into 
a loving, gentle, humble, and forgiving heart. That takes power. You see, it takes more power to take something that is evil and make it good. But that's what God does with us. The text before us will show us that God specifically uses this power to save us, sanctify us, and sustain us. That will be our outline as well. God's power is used to save us, sanctify us, and sustain us. This is the last of the three prayers that Paul has been praying for. Remember, he prayed ultimately that God would give us the Holy Spirit so that we might know our future hope, the hope that is coming that we have. He prayed, secondly, that we might also know that we are God's glorious inheritance, that God counts himself rich to have us as his people, and that God himself is looking forward to having us in heaven. But now he prays, not just that Christians will know their future hope, but their present power. That's what he prays. He prays, God, help these believers to know the power that's already working in us, that's already working in these Christians. Beloved, this is a prayer you should pray for Christians. When's the last time you prayed this for new believers, for other Christians? Father, help them, help my brother, help my sister to understand the power that's working in them. The same power that, that raised Jesus from the dead. We need to pray that for one another because we need it. <laughs> we need to be reminded because we don't know this by, by our natural understanding. We need God's spirit. We need God's help to know this. Look at how much Paul emphasizes God's power in verse 19. He uses four Greek words in verse 19. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Right? So Paul can, cannot um, lavish too many power words, you could say. The Greek word dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite. The Greek word energia, where we get our English word energy from. The Greek word kratos and ischus, which means might. So every possible Greek word that Paul can think about to emphasize power, strength, he says, God, this is what God is doing with us, in us. And Paul immediately goes on to say that this power that's working in us is in accord with something else. Have you noticed that? Just look again at verse 19. So this power, the immeasurable greatness of his power, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the, the, the same power that God used to raise Christ is in accord with the power that's working in us. And so what, are, what is God's power doing? Well, here are the three things that God's doing. We're going to only look at this afternoon at the first two and then next Sunday, Lord willing, at the last one. But, so today we're only going to look at God's power saves us and sustains us. Oh, and sanctifies us, sorry. So the first thing we need to see about God's power is that this power saves us. It saves us. So when verse 20 says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Paul is trying to make the connection that that is exactly what God has done with us. God raised us from the dead to make us a Christian. Now this is really the flow of thought. Notice, just drop down to chapter 2 verse 1. Just drop down to chapter 2 verse 1. What, is, what, were, what was our condition before we were saved? And you were what? Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were spiritual corpses. We were dead. We had no desire for God. To be dead in your sins means you prefer the world above God. It is to have zero taste buds 
for God and his glory. It is to find Jesus boring. It's to find him unattractive, irrelevant to your life. That's what it means to be dead in your sins. In other words, to be dead is to be unwilling and unable to love God, just like a corpse. What can a dead person do? Nothing. What can a spiritually dead person do to raise them from, himself from the dead, to love God, to love the word of God? Nothing. They're just dead. They need a power from outside to raise them, to open their eyes, to see the glory of God. But that's what God did for us. In his sovereign resurrection power, God took our dead hearts and raised it from the dead when we saw Jesus in the gospel. Just drop down to chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, beloved, this is the connection Paul wants us to see, is that the same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead, that was the same power needed to raise us spiritually, that unresponsive dead heart, and to make us Christians. That's real heart surgery. This is real heart surgery. God doesn't just make a few tweaks with our hearts. No, he gives us a brand new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 speaks about the new covenant blessing that God will give us when the Holy Spirit comes. Um, Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So because God has now done the heart surgery, replaced the heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, now we also have a future hope of a bodily resurrection. So although it begins with a spiritual resurrection, it doesn't end there. We will also be bodily raised, just like Christ was bodily raised from the dead. That's our hope. Romans 8 verse 11 makes, connects this dot, these dots for us. So Romans 8 verse 11 says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you see the connection? The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead now lives in us. So it's impossible for us to stay dead. That same spirit will also raise us from the dead and we will have our eternal hope and our internal inheritance in God. So beloved, one of the first things that this should cause for you, when you start to see this power that this is the power that God used. Your reaction should be, if you are a Christian, to stand in awe of your conversion. To stand in awe that that is what God has done to change you. If you believe in Christ, if you love him, if you desire him, that is God's sovereign work. And like all resurrections, one thing that all resurrections have in common, except Jesus' resurrection, is that you need somebody from the outside to raise you. You need somebody from the outside to take you out from your grave and give you new life. And that's exactly what God has done. You are new. You are redeemed. You are free to obey God from the heart. 
So the proper response is to thank God. Ceaseless thanks, right? Remember verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15? Paul says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. As we, as we saw last, when we studied this verse together, we don't thank believers for our faith. We thank God for our faith and our love because it's God's work. It's God's miracle. He gets the praise. And so we should give thanks for our resurrection. But for those who are not saved, right? For those who are still dead in their sins, what is the message of this passage then? If they can do nothing, what can they do? Well, one thing that you must know, based on this truth, that you are a spiritual corpse, that you cannot initiate a relationship with God, is to be reminded that nothing is impossible with God. That with God, all things are equally easy. He can save you. He can change you. So cry out even right now to Him. Ask Him to raise you. Ask Him to give you the new life you don't have. Ask Him to take the deadness of your soul and renew it. It might be impossible with man, but what is impossible with man is possible with God. Let me give you one example of this. Remember who wrote this letter. If you want to uh, cheat, you can look at verse 1. <laughs> 1 verse 1. Paul. Paul wrote this letter. Who was Paul? The worst, the worst of sinners, right? Let me give you a small bio of him. He was a violent persecutor of Christians. He wasn't on his way looking for Jesus. He wasn't on his way trying to understand how he can be saved from his sins. He hated Christians. If they would be of any people, we would be tempted to say that person is beyond salvation. Must be Paul. And Paul himself described himself as the chief. Of sinners. So sorry, if you, if you thought you had that badge, you don't have it. Okay? That belongs to Paul. Paul says, I am the best sinner. <laughs> so I, I will beat all of you. Doesn't matter what you have done, I will beat you. And then think how easy it was for God to save him. How effortless it was. God didn't wrestle with him. <laughs> he didn't. He just showed up. Jesus just revealed himself to him. Boom. He humbles himself. He's, he's saved. God took a violent, dead, legalistic, pharisaic heart and in an instant made it new. In an instant, in a flash, in a blink of an eye, he changed him completely. And that's the hope of every sinner. That's the hope of every dead sinner. God can do that for you. Listen to this. I love this quote from one commentator, Richard Phillips. He writes and says, On what basis then do you doubt that the exalted Christ can change your heart, deliver you from your sins, and make use of your life? How, do you, how dare you doubt that God can save you? How dare you doubt that God cannot use you? Surely he can, for he's almighty. Who is the person that God cannot save if he saved Paul? That's the point, right? So listen to me. God can make you new. If you are dead, if you have no desire for him, come to the Son. Come to Jesus. Don't harden your heart. If you hear his voice right now speaking to you, do not harden yourself, but come to him. Plead with him. Realize your utter dependence upon him to change you. 
and cast yourself upon him. He is a gracious savior. He can change you. He will wash you. He will forgive you and he will cleanse you. So that's the first thing that this power of God does. It, it saves us. That's, I think that's the main point as we look at the flow of thought. But there is a second thing, a second thing that God's power does for us. And that is that God's power also sanctifies us. It also sanctifies us. Now, it's easy to make the link between these two things, between point one and point two. If God's power has raised us from the dead and made us new, if God's power has taken out the heart of stone and put in it the heart of flesh, then now we have a new power and ability to live for God. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are no longer slaves of the devil or slaves of our own passions. No, we are free. We are redeemed. We can obey now. In other words, God's life-giving resurrection power is not just a great starter for your Christian life. It's not just a, a nice shove into your Christian life and now you have to work up enough energy out of your own to try to please God and try to live the Christian life. No. This power is not just something for your past life and it's not just something for your future life. Paul Tripp really makes this beautiful point. He says, Christians do a fairly good job to rely and believe in past grace. Right, That God's, Jesus has died for us, our sins are covered, and we believe that. And we do a fairly good job to believe in future grace, to know that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to raise us from the dead. But we do a very poor job of remembering present grace. There's a big gap between our past, the past grace we believe, and the future grace we believe. But there is. God's grace is not just for the past or for the future. It's for now. It's to help us to live for him every day. That's the point of Romans 6 verse 4, which we read earlier as well. Listen to the rest of the verse. It says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When Jesus died, we died with him. We were crucified with him. We were buried with him. Since penalty and guilt is gone, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You, are no, you no longer have to try to pay God off for your many sins that you have done. Or try to pay him off for future sins, for he died once. That's good news for us. All our sins, past, present, future, has been put on the cross. Now we can just live. Live for him. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So let me just highlight two implications, important implications of these truths. The first implication is that this takes away all excuses to sin. Very simple, but it's profoundly life-changing. How many times do we say things like this in our lives? I couldn't just, I, could, I just couldn't help myself. Or I had no choice. Or that's just the way I am, accept me for what I am. Or I can't change. How many times have you heard that? That's a denial of the power of God. That's a denial. That's a fundamental unbelief in the sovereign God who saved you. To think that you cannot change, that you cannot grow, that you cannot overcome your anger, your lust, your laziness, your gossiping, your envy, your jealousy, your bitterness. 
It's a denial of the sovereign power of God. No, beloved, if you are a Christian, sin no longer rules you. The power available for you to kill your sin is resurrection power. The power to say no to your recurring sin is available. For the Christian, to sin is always a choice. Is always a choice which you can say no to. Listen to Romans 6 verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So think of any struggling, any sin that you might be struggling with. Anger, lust, laziness, maybe self-pity, gossiping. And now think about this. Because this is true, you can stop if you really want to. You can stop if you really want to. As a Christian. But you might say, but how? How do I avail myself? How can I depend and use this power that's available to me? But that's the second implication. This power to sanctify you means God has given you all power to obey him. Very similar to number one. But here I want to focus more on the practical, how we need to rely on God's power to stop sinning. Paul shows us how to rely on this power with the rest of Romans 6. Have you noticed how important Romans 6 is? So if you want to master a passage on sanctification, it should be Romans 6. Notice again, so in Romans 6 verse 11, Paul says this, he says, So you also must do what? Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. This is, a, this is so, so amazing. Paul says, we are dead. You're already dead, whether you believe it or not. You are dead to sin. The power of God is already working in you. Now believe it. Consider yourself dead. Come in line with the truth that's already true. And that's the problem. When, when we struggle with sin and we don't overcome, we, we stop believing that we are dead to sin. We start to subtly believe we can't stop. We start to subtly take on a new identity that's not our identity. We start to take on the identity that we are just, that's just who I am. I can't change. I'm just an angry person. The moment you say that, you're no longer having a Christian identity. I'm just a bitter person. I'm just this kind of a person. No, you are not Christian. You are not that. That's your old self. That's your dead self. That's creeping on and wants to be raised from the dead. No, the first step is actually profoundly simple. Consider yourself dead. Believe that you are dead. That's why Paul says, again, remember chapter 1, it's so amazing. He doesn't pray for Christians to be empowered. He prays that they might know that they are already empowered, that they already have the strength to obey. Right? It's the similar thing of Romans 6. You already did. Now, God, please help these believers to believe it. Help them to know it. Help them to truly see it. Even if you have to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand, do it. You can do it. You can't stop the idolatry. You can't stop the addiction. You can't stop because you are in Christ. Then, after you've believed that truth, there is a second thing you need to do. So, first, consider yourself dead. But then you do need to pray and ask God for strength. So, this is not, Roman, this is not Ephesians 1, but this is Ephesians 3. Okay, so... Just, turn, just look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. 3 verse 14 says, 
Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Okay, verse 17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Sorry. So, do you see that it's interesting, the parallel. Chapter 1, he doesn't pray for strength. He prays that we might know the strength that's already at work in us. But chapter 3, he prays for us to be strengthened. So there's a, it's, it almost seems like he's contradicting himself. But no, these are two different things. The first one is the reality of our identity in Christ, that we are already dead to sin, that we have the power to stop. The second one is now our dependence upon God for the strength by His Holy Spirit. It is now really to ask God to fill us and control us with His Holy Spirit. It is to ask God to be under the control of the Word of God. So that's what Paul prays. He prays, God, strengthen these believers through the Holy Spirit in their inner being so that Christ can dwell in their hearts, that Christ can make his home in our lives. And that's really what chapter 5 verse 18 also says. Just turn over to chapter 5 verse 18 as well. This is a command. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit when we are filled with God's Word. We are controlled by the Spirit as the Word of God controls our thinking. And we are controlled and filled by the Spirit when we ask God for the Spirit. Remember, Jesus said this, What father among you, if your son asks you for a scorpion or a fish, will give him a stone or bread? And then he says, How much more will God give you? The Holy Spirit for those who ask him. We need to ask him. We need to ask God, God, I need you. I am dependent upon you. Give me your spirit. Fill my mind with your word and your truth that I might think clearly and sober-mindedly. What did Jesus say to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus taught us to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. You see, so there's a, a crucial element of depending on this power by Praying and filling our minds with the truths of God's word. That's our responsibility. We depend on him through prayer and the word. Prayer and the word. Prayer and the word. That's what we need. And once we have the word of God dwelling in us, and once we've asked God for his spirit, now we really can obey every command. Let me mention a few for you that you might think, like, that's impossible, okay? You might wonder, how in the world can I obey a command like this? that to do all things without grumbling and complaining. That's actually a command. Philippians 2 verse 14. How can you do that? By the power that God provides. How in the world will you be able to let go of your bitterness in, the, in your heart to let go of vengeance? Or how in the world will you be able to love your enemies, those who constantly hurt you over and over and over again? By the power that God provides. How in the world will I not let my anger control me by the power that God provides? How in the world will we be content with our possessions and not always be anxious about our futures by the power that God provides? How will I be patient as a single person? How will, how will I be content with my present situation while I trust God for my future spouse by the power that God provides? How will we as husbands lay down our lives for our wives, love them, cherish them, nourish them, sacrifice ourselves for them over and over again until death 
by the power that God provides. How in the world will wives submit under their husbands and respect them and follow their lead? By the power that God provides. Here's a key sentence to remember. John Flavel said, The duty to obey God is ours, but the power to obey God is God's. The duty is ours, the power is God's. That makes a profound dif difference. I'm not trying to just muster up enough strength in your own. No, the duty is yours. You have to do it. God's not going to obey in your place. You have to obey. But the power to do that is God. It's God's. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that's the key. It's really to learn to rely on the strength that's already yours. To rely on the Holy Spirit. To have communion with Christ. To abide in Christ as His Word abides in us. John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he says how we abide in him in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If God's words abide in us and we pray, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is so good news. If you have been battling with sin, if you have been struggling with, with sin, there is no sin you cannot overcome or walk in obedience to. Again, I want to read this quote. It says, Therefore, what aid could we need that is beyond his ability to give? What obstacle is so great that he cannot remove it? What calling have we received that he cannot supply the power to fulfill? What challenge must we endure? What temptation or trial do we face? What sin are we burdened but that Christ cannot overcome it as he works in us with his almighty power? Let me just close with just two practical suggestions to live in the light of this glorious future and your present power. So just two habits I think we should have. And I've learned this from Richard Baxter. Um, and J.R. Packer helpfully noted how the Puritans would call for a daily heaven work and a daily heart work. So that's what we need to do. We need to have a daily heaven work and a daily heart work. Now, heaven work refers to that daily habit, the daily discipline, the daily work of meditating on being with Jesus one day forever and ever. It's heaven work. We are back to Paul's first prayer. Father, help me to know the hope I have. But we need to do that daily. We need daily reminders and meditating on finally being with Christ in heaven. Meditate on that reality that one day you will never struggle with sin anymore that you will never suffer, that you will with, be with the Lord forever and ever. Meditate on those things. And that is important. Why? Because as we do heaven work, it will give you spiritual energy. It will give you that energy you feel you don't have to live what J.I. Packer calls the forward tilted life. So as we do heaven work, we will have energy to live forward, to go forward in the strife and in the race. But secondly, not just heaven work, but we also need to do daily heart work. Heart work, our own hearts. Heart work is when we consider our hearts before God and do the work of taking out the weeds that have grown in us, that have festered in us. It is to search your heart of all things that is robbing you of your love for Christ. That's like a leech sucking you dry for your devotion to God. Like Jesus said, you have left your first love. 
repent and return to me. Hard work is to search your heart for any doubt, any anxiety, any lust, any discontentment, any laziness, and or any other sin that has started to make its home in your heart. And to remove it as fast as you can. Just like weeds, sin is always easiest to kill when it is at its beginning. But give it enough time to grow. Give it enough time to take root. It's going to take a lot more effort to get at the root and to take it out. And for that, we will need a lot of power and energy. But do that daily. The daily heaven work and the daily heart work as we rely on God's resurrection power to walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we confess our weakness before you. Lord, it is humbling even just to think about our bodily and our physical weakness, sleeping a third of our lives away because we are so weak, we're so frail. And Lord, yet you remember our frame. You remember that we are but dust. Lord, thank you that you love us, that you delight in us as your children and as your bride. Thank you that you didn't just leave us to to kill our sin on our own. You didn't leave us to try to muster up enough strength to do this, but you have given us everything we need for the life of godliness. So Father, I pray for all of us as your children that you will help us to believe the resurrection power that's already at work in us. That power that raised us from the dead and the power that's busy sanctifying us. Oh Father, but help us to also consider ourselves dead to sin, to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, to rely on your Holy Spirit as we fill our minds with the Word of God, as we empty our hearts through prayer to you daily. Lord, teach us the habit to, to do the daily heaven work and the daily heart work so that we might live the forward-tilted life to honor and glorify your name. O oh, Father, we give ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, for you are worthy and you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name.